Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. Today for this episode, we're getting into the re-emergence of psychedelics. It's a comeback, if you will, for the compounds. In the United States, this re-emergence is notable for rising research of psychedelics in the science and medical communities to treat depression, trauma, and substance abuse. New York Times columnist and author Carl Zimmer moderated the conversation with panelist Dr. Nathan Sackett, University of Washington addiction psychiatrist, and palliative and hospice care expert Dr. Sunil Agarwal that took place in May at the Crosscut Ideas Festival in Seattle. In this talk, these experts explore the effects psychedelics have on the brain. For Sackett, he says he views their impacts from a neuroscience perspective and how psychedelics provide an interesting insight into the nature of consciousness and what it means to be human, explaining his own hypothesis for the benefits of various substances. Dr. Agarwal points to the complexity of brain connectivity and how psychedelics can induce meaningful and beneficial moods, such as a state of awe. Both doctors agree all drugs are not equal. You'll understand why Dr. Sackett says psychedelics and psychotherapy go hand in hand to treat patients. And while the growth of opportunities for these substances is underway, there are still barriers not yet clear. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Here. Hello, uh, my name is Carl Zimmer. Um, I'm a columnist uh, for the New York Times. I'm the author of 14 books about science. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, psychedelics. Um, these substances in the United States are, are really emerging from the shadows uh, where they've been for decades. You know, psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists are are learning about how these compounds uh, affect the brain. Um, there's research showing some pretty promising results about how psychedelics can help in the treatment of depression, substance abuse, trauma, a whole range of psychiatric conditions. But there is a, a long road ahead uh, for before psych psychedelics like psilocybin and ketamine are going to become a standard part of, of the psychiatric toolkit. Um, so today I'll be speaking to two people who are really at the forefront of the field. Um, to my far left, uh, Nathan Sackett is an addiction psychiatrist at University of Washington. Um, he got his medical degree at the University of California, San Francisco. And here in Seattle, he splits his time with, uh, with patients and uh, doing research on things like uh, psychedelics for, uh, for example, substance abuse and other conditions. Um, Sunil uh, Agarwal, uh, to my left, got his medical degree at the University of Washington, uh, as well as a PhD in medical geography. Um, he specializes in palliative care, uh, helping people to cope with stresses at the end of life. Uh, along with, uh, with research on other conditions. Um, and so we'll be uh, talking for about you know, maybe half an hour uh, and then uh, 
we'll, we'll you know, turn over to such questions from you in, in the audience. Um, there'll be information about how to uh, use the Slido app to do that. Um, so we, you know, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground, but uh, you know, there's so many uh, issues ar around psychedelics. Um, you know, please, uh, you know, help us to steer the conversation. Um, so, Dr. Agarwal, Dr. Sackett, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, maybe we, we, let's begin um, just. Uh, so on a personal level, maybe uh, Nathan and Sunil, you could sort of talk about um, how you came to study psychedelics, you know, in your in your work as as psychiatrists and people uh, helping people with various disorders. I mean, when did that kind of enter into you know your work as a as someone treating people and doing research? Let me start with you. Yeah. Yeah. My interest in psychedelics really emerged when I was in training to be an adult psychiatrist. It, that was right around the time when there was this emergence of new literature to demonstrate that psychedelics perhaps had some therapeutic effects, uh, particularly focused on end-of-life distress, depression. Um, and I think while I was in training, I began to see what a lot of people face who work in mental health, which is the severe limitations of our current system. And particularly around substance use disorders, I became really frustrated with the way in which we were engaging with substance use disorders. Um, and the, the piece that really motivated me, um, a researcher by the name of Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins published a small pilot study on tobacco use disorder that showed really profound effects. It was a very small study. So, so people are trying to quit smoking, mm -hmm. and then they take some type of psychedelics. They like took psilocybin, took and they, psilocybin. they, they did. Okay. They took psilocybin in the setting of a of some therapy, and they had just profound effects on on abstinence rates. And so, it piqued my interest, and I was like, you know, for me to stay engaged in this field, I needed to feel as though there was some hope that there was some improvement, and it seemed like psychedelics could potentially be that. And so that's really what led to. A, to my work, which was ultimately creating a center at the university and trying to develop a research program at the university to help move this work forward. And this is the Center for Novel Therapeutics? Yeah, the correct? Center for Novel Therapeutics in Addiction Psychiatry. It's a center that's multidisciplinary, that's in the university, and it's housed in the Department of Psychiatry. It's a joint venture with the Department of Family Medicine. Um, I directed along with a colleague of mine, Dr. Darren Smith, where we really focus on the question of what's the best psychedelic paired with what psychotherapy to treat what substance use disorder. The thinking being that eventually I can imagine a day where we will have a range of different compounds to, that we can pair specifically with a specific psychotherapy, you know, with a, speci with a specific psychotherapy to target the specific needs of the patient. And that's really the, the biggest picture kind of goal that we're aiming towards. Got it, great. And Sunil, what's your story? Thank you, Carl. Um, I would say my interest began as an undergraduate in Berkeley when I was experimenting with psychedelic substances myself, illegally, of course, but uh, that's uh, what many people do. Uh, but it, it was in a safe setting, I felt, and uh, I really experienced a sense of a relief of existential anxiety and distress that I had just sort of developed growing up in. America as a minority in the mid, in the uh, buckle of the Bible Belt, it was it was a big change experience for me to feel a little bit at peace with the cosmos. It was an LSD trip I remember, and previously to that, cannabis, 
And I thought, well, this is really significant. And it didn't just sort of like go away the next day, or, okay, now I'm back. There was this sort of enduring sense and like a, you know, inquiry that started and like, oh, maybe something happened in my brain and changed change consciousness, you know, and I, I started really getting interested in the, the, the brain science. Uh, I was studying chemistry, philosophy, and things at Berkeley, and so I started studying all these new um, understandings that were happening and neuroplasticity and how, how these kinds of compounds actually can help trigger changes in neural networks and that it's not this sort of, okay, you're just coming, it's an afterglow, there's actually potential changes in the layout of the, of the uh, nervous system. So um, when I went to medical school and did my MD-PhD here at the University of Washington, I was very f interested in looking at the role of these kinds of compounds in healing, helping to heal uh, existential distress, uh, pain, um, and so I did a lot of work on cannabis, actually, and, and even there, I saw, more and more, I saw so many patients that were struggling with life-threatening illnesses, uh, cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, or other neurodegenerative conditions, or severe uh, debilitating spinal cord injuries where their lives are just forever changed, and the ways in which substances like this were helping them cope and, you know, palliate the distress of, uh, and the grief. So. Uh, and then when I, when I went to NYU for my uh, residency uh, in uh, rehabilitation medicine, I teamed up with the uh, psilocybin research group that was uh, studying uh, cancer anxiety uh, with psilocybin, uh, Stephen Ross and uh, Tony Bossis and Jeffrey Gusson. Uh, that was really remarkable just to see in operation and practice how, you know, in a big hospital in Manhattan, patients were able to actually get referred and, and be part of a clinical trial. And, and I got to see some of the results that were coming out of those studies, the actual subjective reports of patients. And it really, it made an impact on me. I was like, this is actually can be done. If there's a legitimacy, there's a science, there's so many studies uh, that I was exposed to in my, in my graduate studies. And I was just like, well, it's, it's time to implement this. And now in, in practice, I can see um, I'm working with ketamine as an off-label therapy in my clinic, uh, and I, for five or six years, remarkable changes you can see with patients with uh, mental uh, psychological distress at the end of life or serious pain or debility. Um, so I know it's a, the field is, is ripe. We just have a lot of, there's still a lot to do, but there's a lot to sort of, on the public health level for us to actually do the experimental or practical work, and, and that's what I've been working on recently. So, I mean, I, I can remember as a journalist writing about science um, a few years ago where I would start to see, like, you know, published papers on, like, you know, sort of the basics, like the neurobiology of psychedelics. Like, you just didn't see that before because it was just very difficult to do the research. And it's been really striking from you know, my sort of outsider's perspective as a journalist that you know, like, this is really the subject of, of basic research. And I was just sort of curious, like, from your perspective, like, what do you think that you know, now that you and others can study the effect of these particular substances on the brain, like, what seems to be happening? Like, like wh why is it that, that uh, these substances have such uh, profound influences on the brain, and, and why does it seem that they have this promise to treat these disorders? Like, what are we learning about, about how it works? That's a, a very good question that a lot of uh, very uh, dedicated people are trying to answer. Um, I think in the simplest way, um, I mean, I, there, there's a few different questions I hear. I think from a kind of a neuroscience perspective, I think psychedelics are providing an interesting insight into things like the, the nature of consciousness and 
Um, what does it mean to be human? What is, um, you know, they can kind of be seen almost as a, um, almost like a neuroscience probe, if you will, um, that seems to be drawing expertise from a lot of different disciplines, which is, which is really interesting. So that's kind of one domain that I see psychedelics uh, and the research moving towards. The other domain is really looking more at its specific clinical application as a, as a potential treatment. To that question, kind of how and why is it working? I mean, that is unknown. That's very much unknown. I, my personal hypothesis is that I think psychedelics provide an opportunity for people to step outside of their own narrative a little bit. You know, I think we all have stories that are going on in our, in our mind that are probably, these stories are probably um, scripted when we're children and they, they kind of get reinforced over time. And when we enter into adulthood, these stories are, they can be quite profound and quite loud, if you will. And those sorts of stories can really, in my opinion, can lead to certain maladaptive behaviors like substance use or kind of um, what one may call depressogenic behavior, being isolated, loneliness, not so engaging. So we're sort of trapped in our own stories in a way? I'm, I'm sorry? We're sort of trapped in our, our own stories? Exactly, exactly. And so, so I think where psychedelics play a role is they give someone the opportunity to question the validity of that story and kind of step outside of it a little bit. And um, I think that can be profoundly important. The other therapeutic mechanism uh, that I see is quite powerful is for a lot of people, when they struggle with mental health concerns, their emotional valence, their range of emotional experiences becomes very narrow, right? And I think what's really powerful with psychedelics is for, for people who have not experienced, say, joy or wonder or awe for a really long time, to have that experience can kind of catalyze this, this uh, epiphany of like, oh, wait a minute, I still have the capacity to feel joy and happiness. And yes, it is induced by these compounds, but it's still fundamentally in me. I still have that ability. And I think that when you pair it with psychotherapy can be profoundly helpful and can really act as a catalyst towards behavioral change. But again, that's just my hypothesis. That's, there's probably a lot of different opinions and I'm curious to yeah. see you opinion. Well, the, yeah, absolutely what you're saying, Nathan, but I think the awe thing is really remarkable. I, there's a whole field in and psychology of awe, uh, literature is coming out where you can actually induce states of awe in other ways. Um, but we know that there's some common pathways in the brain and the nervous system that uh, seem to be changed. And it's, it's sort of, people talk about awe, oh, it's like a mini earthquake in the brain. I've seen some people write those kinds of things in the paper. So there is this sort of, and then Michael Pollan calls it like shaking up the snow globe. You know, that, that, that there's a way in which those kinds of experiences do kind of lead to a, potentially these profound insights, ahas. And, and then neurobiologically, there, we do study and see um, you know, in animal studies and for animals were sacrificed with, with ketamine, we can see in, in other substances that there's a sprouting of dendrites, you know, uh, which allow for more connections, you know, to other neurons in certain parts of the brain. So, uh, and then they say neurons that fire together, wire together. So how you kind of then create the, the opportunity when you have more potential for connectability or the connectome people have talked about. Um, when you're in that sort of state, then you can mold it and shape it in a certain way, and that's sort of the goal, the role of psychotherapy or other kinds of structures or containers to support that process, because these substances are, can be used for serious violence, too. It's a, they're not like inherently medicine. I mean, uh, unfortunately, we have a long history of use of uh, LSD, for example, in you know, mind control or MEK Ultra. There's all these studies 
studies where our work was done. So it's, it's, uh, it's insensitive to what you're going to use it. So hopefully, and so you have to be very careful. So you want to create the conditions that this awe experience could lead to hopefully better, um, better health, better well-being. And I think that's, that's one of the big mechanisms. Also, so neuroplasticity, the other, other one that uh, some colleagues and I wrote a paper on psychedelics for brain injury uh, in the Frontiers in Neurology recently. And, there's a lot of research that suggests that these compounds have some kind of anti-inflammatory activity in the brain, even endogenously produced. We have some you know, naturally occurring compounds that- so Inflammation <coughs> can be harmful to the brain by like killing off- Yeah, uh, yeah. inflammation is such a powerful thing. You, got, you want it when you need it, and then you want yeah. it off when, it, when you're done with it. And hmm. if you have a, a head injury you know, um, or other types of injuries to the brain, you can have a lot of excitatory damage. Glutamate excitotoxicity is what it's called. And, and you need to find a way to turn that off so that you can then repair, re have the repair mechanisms. And one of the body's natural mechanisms might be some of these endogenous compounds like endocannabinoids cannabinoids and uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT. And so uh, medicines that can help sort of push that along will help uh, potentially a brain recover from, from stroke or head injury. And so that's another mechanism. I think there's, there's a lot going on. There's psychological mechanisms and chemical mechanisms. And, and there's definitely a lot of spiritual, religious histories of use of psychedelic substances and how, what containers uh, traditional cultures create. And, um, and, and then in the West, we had the Good Friday experiment before all research was stopped. You know, Walter Pankey at uh, Marsh Chapel in Boston, where they showed. And when was this? Uh, 64, mid, early mid 60s. I don't okay. remember exactly the year, but it was a famous experiment that was done at Marsh Chapel by Walter Pankey. He's now passed away, unfortunately, but he was a experienced experimental theologist, and he gave um, uh, psilocybin capsules to uh, divinity students and, and other group placebo, and and they had the Good Friday Mass, and he wanted to see who had more profound experiences in the mass and could you, could you, and then, then there was like years follow-up studies, but there was very enduring uh, positive effects in these divinity students, uh, calling it the most profound experience of their lives and things like that. So um, anyway, I just wanted to also throw that out there too. There's a whole other framework in the, in sort of the study of divinity. Um, and, and maybe that's a mechanism that, you know, people would explain like, this is what's happening here is that you're having this kind of profound experience and, and that's changing your life. Um, so uh, maybe uh, each of you could talk about um, some of the, the research you're doing right now. I mean, I know that you're both involved with really fascinating trials. Um, is there a surprising you know, range of things that you can be using these various substances for? I mean, we don't have a ton of time, so maybe if you want to like, pick one or, or that really is sort of speaking to you about you know, just about the potential for this that you're, you're doing? I mean, I know you have a lot to choose from, but, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, so a trial that I'm very excited about starting here soon is uh, we're gonna be doing a trial looking at the combination of treating people who have both PTSD and alcohol use disorder. Um, these two disorders are highly comorbid. They occur a lot together. And you can imagine for someone who has a really traumatic history and is hypervigilant and, um, super anxious and super fearful, alcohol is a natural kind of fit, right? People kind of, there's this kind of self-medication model. Um, and so the two exist together. And the challenge with that is that the, each of these pathologies make it more difficult to treat the other. And so it can be very, very hard to, to help folks who are struggling with both of these disorders. 
So we're gonna be giving, hopefully be giving psilocybin and psychotherapy to folks who have both of these disorders to see if we can kind of move the needle uh, and if we can see a change in both drinking behavior and also PTSD symptomatology. I also just wanna highlight, you know, when, when we talk, when I talk about research of psychedelics, it's really important to highlight that I'm not talking about psychedelics by themselves. It's really psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. The two have to go hand in hand. It's my personal belief, and this is again just my own hypothesis, that the psychedelics really act as kind of a catalyst to behavioral change when it occurs in the dyad of a therapeutic relationship. Otherwise, the, with, without that, it's recreation. It's going out and, and doing it on your own, which is fine for, for people, but that's a very different uh, kind of pathway than doing it with a therapist and having that intentionality. So anyway, that's one of the studies that, that I'm excited about, about getting started here shortly. So you sort of, in a way, the psychedelics are making your job as a therapist easier or giving you more potential to, to help people to move past some of these exactly. issues. I mean, you can imagine for a lot of folks who have, say, a trauma history or a long history of, of alcohol use disorder, they've developed a lot of defenses that in a, in a traditional psychotherapeutic way might take years to develop the trust necessary to really start to move the needle behaviorally. Um, and what what the hope is, is that the psychedelics could kind of speed up that process a little bit and allow people to actually start to, to change their behaviors in a shorter duration of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been fantastic. Um, I, my work uh, that I'll highlight is, uh, my, uh, the, we've had an effort for a few years to use the, the federal and state right to try program to um, use psychedelic psilocybin uh, for the treatment of conditions that are life-threatening. And I had uh, two patients that, um, it's kind of a program where we use research substances that are in development um, before they're f finally uh, fully available uh, for patients who have life-threatening conditions. And FDA has recognized for a long time and, uh, that we need uh, kind of a, it's, it's, therape it's therapeutic, but using research compounds, you can say. So it's, an, uh, so it's called, they're called eligible investigational new drugs is, is the category in law. And so psilocybin fits that category um, because it's been developed and through completed phase one safety studies. And so um, if, as long as we find a manufacturer that's willing to provide it to us and we have patients that are given an informed consent. So I created informed consent documents for two of my uh, integrative palliative care practice uh, patients uh, uh, both women in their uh, 50s with um, uh, advanced cancer, one with triple negative uh, stage four breast cancer, so that's a, a more aggressive form of breast cancer. Uh, and then the other patient had a recurrent ovarian cancer, GYN, with a uh, high uh, tumor markers uh, called the BRCA genes. So these are pretty aggressive cancers. They're, they're sort of, they find zones of stability with treating these, where there's lots of new developments in immunotherapy and things like that. However, there's always what we call the sort of sword of Damocles that hangs over your head when you have cancer like this. You, well, when's the next shoe gonna drop? Or so they're just always you? under stress? I, yeah, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of distress. Uh, I, there's, there's these syndromes, so it's hard, they're hard to treat, and it's really important to try to have ongoing therapeutic support, mm -hmm. palliative support. And so the psychedelic compound psilocybin, we believe, based on the clinical trials that have been done in various places, that there's a, a good reason to believe that this could have robust, lasting uh, improvements in the quality of life of our, my patients. So we asked uh, for our right to try access, and we're still fighting for it in the courts, basically, because then DEA said, well, we can't really, we don't have a, a pathway for that. Um, 
and but then many other uh, our state government and many other state uh, attorney generals and national organizations said no this this is a valid way to uh, use this uh, this right to try law and and ethically it makes sense it's sort of a public health code so it, that's a form of re it's a form of practice where I have to utilize research findings and development to to achieve a, a good for my patients and so right now we're uh, hope I'm hopeful you know I've been able to utilize ketamine assisted therapy for these patients and I would use the same framework when we would get access to psilocybin. And so hopefully you can keep up on the Ninth Circuit Court where they'll be having oral, they'll be having arguments in response, the government's telling, to, has to respond to us why, why they think it's dangerous to give our, my you know, patients this. We actually asked them to reschedule psilocybin um, as it's to simplify it for them so that there's a limited accepted medical use. Since, this, since the compound has achieved breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, uh, and since um, you know, it's an eligible investigational drug, there's a limited medical, accepted medical use. And so DEA just has to update that schedule so that it will make it easier for them to provide it to us, um, uh, me as a licensed doctor. So that's what we're waiting to hear what the government wants to say in response to that. They've had two months of extension, so I'm hoping by now they have thought of something. But um, yeah, this, this is kind of my way of doing something experimentally practical. Mm -hmm. um, but, it definitely, but it definitely shows the, uh, the complexity of working with these substances that are in this sort of gray zone. Yeah, that's correct. Definitely. And other countries, Australia and Canada, they have programs like this. So this is not like this, there's no role or no place to, for this in medicine. It's, we're just in the US, we have our different channels. and. Um, I'm hoping that um, we'll, we'll get some yeah. response soon. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher-paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. So um, when you're working with these substances, are there particular concerns you have about um, how things can go wrong? I mean, you know, when we think of drugs, we think of substance abuse, and yet, you know, you have been working on using these compounds to treat substance abuse. So, so how do you like make sure that you know people aren't going to just start using what you're giving them, just you know, illegally? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I get this question often. I think that it is important to differentiate that all drugs are not created equal you would think that drug policy would follow kind of a rational logic of like the more dangerous the drug is, the more difficult it is to get access to or the more the law would reflect that. But that's not really the case. If we look at things like mortality, you know, tobacco kills 480,000 per year in the US. You know, alcohol, uh, the last estimated data suggests about 100,000 related alcohol deaths per year. I mean, these are tremendously high numbers and yet these two substances are totally legal. So I think it's important to differentiate that, that drugs are not all the same, right? And, and that context and situation makes a really, really big difference. So there's also something to be said about the inherent risk of a compound becoming abused. Certain compounds lend themselves more towards abuse because of their inherent interaction with dopamine. So something like, say, methamphetamine, it's very, uh, it acts on the dopamine system very robustly. And so it leads to a high risk for overuse comparatively to something like psilocybin, which has 
none or negligible amount of dopamine activity, and so the probability of abuse is quite low. Similarly, so with the dopamine, you kind of want to kind of regain that impact it's having on that kind of reward system in the brain. Absolutely. And psilocybin is just doing its thing in a different... It it's a, has a separate way. mechanism. And similarly, with something like psilocybin, there is this phenomena where you, uh, your brain essentially downregulates the receptors once you take it. And so if you were to take psilocybin, say, two days in a row, um, the second day wouldn't have any effect. So there's hmm. kind of this natural like anti-abuse potential. Now, obviously, anything can be abused, right? I mean, that it, it can extend. I, I don't want to say like there's no abuse potential because there, of course, everything can be abused uh, in certain settings. But in from a public health perspective, I would say the risk is is quite low. Yeah, and I just to, uh, so the psilocybin, the recorded deaths, it's very it's negligible. We can't find anything. I mean, people can do unsafe things uh, when they're in an altered state, and that's certainly there, there's certainly risk like that. But uh, in the kind of context that we're talking about, or we're talking about settings where we have monitoring or support, so it's uh, very safe. Uh, we the adverse events are and in the studies are also quite low. There are some patients who have cardiac risk factors. We need to pay attention to that in medical screening. Uh, people who have really um, you know unstable uh, bipolar or psychotic disorders, we have to be more careful in those cases. So screening in, in the context of medical use, I think, is, is really helpful for managing any kind of uh, adverse events. And even if they do come up, you can still manage them. And, and we're not concerned with the risk of death. Like I said, it doesn't show up in the studies. So. But I do, I do think it um, can be done safely as long as we've learned a lot, even though with prohibition and all the things and then again, I want to remind that there is like cultures that have had many centuries of traditional cultural use, and, and that information is, is helpful for us to feel better. I mean, that's chemical psilocybin versus a fungal mushroom, uh, although you can, we can also develop fungal, fungal psilocybin. Uh, Canada, there's Canadian companies that are, you know, have developed sort of standardized versions of that or more, more reliable so you can dose it. And, and just yesterday, I think, Oregon announced their psilocybin service center. They first licensed yeah, one. Yeah, maybe, so. maybe you could talk a little bit more. Like, I literally like, was hearing it on the radio yesterday. I was like, oh, right, another question to ask. So, what, so let's talk about what's going on in Oregon and maybe what that portends for here in Washington or other states, or, if anything. So I think there's a big push from a lot of states. I think there's 23 states that have some sort of state legislation that focuses on psychedelics. And those really range from you know, decriminalization, which is essentially saying, let's not make this a priority of our police and our justice system. So that's kind of on one extreme, to something like Oregon, which is really developing the infrastructure to provide access to its citizens uh, for psilocybin. So there's a whole range, and we're, we're in the very early stages of really understanding what the implications of that are. But I think in many ways, I see the state's push for these services as a litmus test that you know, we're really in a desperate times where we really, people are desperate for more opportunities to engage with this sort of medicine. And I think, um, I think Oregon will be an interesting experiment to see how that goes, and I'm excited to see how that, folds, uh, how that, how that unfolds over time. Yeah, it's, I, I'm very excited about it too. I, I'm, I'm concerned about lack of privacy. Um, they, they, there's, there's, they had to strike an in-between ground between, you know, is this therapy or is this services? So the term is psilocybin services. 
and, and the, you know, the guides that the state will license aren't necessarily, don't, don't need to have clinical degrees, you know, they could be a bachelor's degree and then some additional training and, and it's, you know, we'll see how that works, but it's really important that it, whatever does happen there that you can feel safe and private and there's been, people want to mine the data and pull, you know, it's like the privacy things you select on your iPhone or something, I'll go, what, what did I just sign away here? Um, but I think that's one of the concerns because we haven't been able to do the therapy thing because of the way it's been locked out. We're kind of in this, this other level. So there's some ethical concerns there and access and cost. Those are, but at the same time, this is, this is happening. There is a state body that's sort of authorizing a place where this can happen and also facilities that are producing psilocybin you know, from, from mushroom, from mushroom cultures that are growing. So. And it's just, the thing in Oregon is just specifically for psilocybin. Psilocybin, uh, yeah, in Colorado's uh, law, they have opportunities for other psychedelic substances, um, but they're, I think they're starting with a psilocybin okay. service model. Um, well, thank, thank you for the questions. Um, um, they're popping up on my, my iPad. Uh, we, we, I'm gonna try to get to as many as I can, but um, there's a lot. Um, so here's one question. So how is the experience different when using psychedelics for recreation versus retreating medical conditions such as addictions or PTSD? Like how would you, um, you know, if people, you know, people are, have, you know, taken some mushrooms or something like that, but just they're, you know, doing it on their own or whatever. What's, what's that, how is that different than the, the, what we've been talking about? So again, I think, I think the big difference is intention. So any of us could go and take some psilocybin in the woods and have a great time. Could be really interesting, could be really fun. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of one domain. I would say in the clinical domain, the way that we conceptualize it is it's you develop a relationship with your therapist, you talk about intention, you talk about kind of behaviors or specific areas that you wanna focus on, perhaps trauma or depression or what, you know, whatever the pathology or the difficulty is. And then you go into the session with that in mind. And of course, you know, I always warn people that the, what you go into the session uh, thinking you're gonna go, you're gonna get out of it, it may not reflect the reality, but, but I think it's about intention and about um, the focus, if you will, of the experience. So then you have the session, then after the session you have what's called integration therapy, which is the opportunity to have kind of traditional therapy where you really talk about making meaning from that experience and how do you catalyze that experience into some sort of change thereafter. Um, so that's kind of how it functionally looks different. I don't know, Sunil, if you agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I'm gonna respond by what's similar. So that's great, the difference is the similarity is that in, in the right settings, the recreation can be therapeutic yeah, because you, you're, it's all about changing your nervous system from fight or flight to more of a parasympathetic dominance. People, we know that heart disease is caused by like stress. So many things are driven by stress. So if you can do something to help you really have a sense of joy, that could be therapeutic and that we shouldn't deny and, that. And parasympathetic, oh, parasympathetic oh, dominance, could you oh, yeah, that's define a, that for that's us? Sort of, yeah, and the social nervous system, that's more evolved and you, that's where you can kind of be in a, a state of learning new things. You're not worried about serious insecurities of your life threat or other types of existential threats. You're, you're in a state where you're more engaged, uh, more tuned into people's faces and it helps your help regulate your heart rate so parasympathetic versus sympathetic and so it's kind of I'm talking about that and that's a, that's a helpful thing we know that from from recreation therapy which is actually a licensed area in many states 
So I just wanted to add that. And also, potentially, recreation could be part of people's uh, spiritual or religious practices because it can help you uh, potentially heal in some deeper way. I just, I think that's, that like, like medical psychedelic therapy, there's a health, could be a health benefit. But like medical, there's also risks for, you know, for both of these models. And I, I just think it's, um, and, and you can still set up containers where you can do some intention setting on your own or with other people. But, you know, you are in a more risky scenario if you're out in the woods versus, in, you know, in a controlled setting. But I think we, we have to kind of learn how to make things safer. And that's what the job of public health actually is. You don't, anyway, nobody can just, you know, you don't get boating licenses, you know, for anybody. You have to do certain things in order to feel safe outside. So those, that's the kind of model I think that Oregon is trying to develop as an in-between between those two frames. Um, uh, Question, sort of following up uh, about the therapy side of things. Um, so uh, one question is, are there any specific psychotherapy interventions, examples of like cognitive behavioral training, mindfulness-based therapy? Are there any particular kinds of interventions with ther psychotherapy that appear to map better onto psychedelics? Absolutely. I'm, well, yes, I think there's a lot of interest in um, in identifying particular forms of therapy that, that map well on. I would say um, there are, so in my practice, I use a lot of motivational enhancement therapy and motivational interviewing as kind of forms of and therapy. Just, and what is that? So entail? these are therapies that really help people elicitate change behavior by getting them to talk about how to make changes for themselves. It's, it's a way of trying to understand motivation and try to and support people's intrinsic motivation. Um, and to, uh, yeah. I would say that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the easiest way to explain it. Um, but certainly there is interest in using CBT and different manualized therapies. Cognitive behavioral therapies with CBT stands for. Yeah, thank for. you, thank you. Um, and then other systems or other therapies that are often used, internal family systems is a big one that's um, a system of therapy that's being used a lot in- Looking at your conscious, yourself as different parts. Yeah. You have this part and that part, you know, a part that's angry, a part, you know, a younger part, a part that needs to be more held, a part that's more dominant, like, and say, this is all an internal family you have and how to sort of make peace with those different parts. Richard Schwartz. It's also somatic therapies. Mm -hmm. It's really totally. interesting. And somatic therapies, right? This is like body-based psychotherapy where you do help uh, patients, clients tune into different sensations in the body, different places where different uh, emotions are held, um, you know, and, um, and, and sometimes there's movement practices or just kind of tapping into that as sort of the body perception as the focus of therapy. You know, so not tell me all about your memories, but tell me where you're feeling it right now. Hmm. And I think that's, uh, there's a lot of interest in using those methods, especially the MDMA-assisted therapy, which is, uh, we haven't mentioned that compound, that's kind of the most furthest along in psychedelic um, drug M approval. MDMA, process. sometimes people know it as ecstasy, and, and that, that's actually the furthest along. Say. It is, yeah. yeah. I think they, they really have been, uh, MAPS, Public Benefit Corporation, has been around since 85, and, uh, well, the original parent organization, and their whole goal for the last 20 years was to get to this place, so it's remarkable um, how they've moved that. It took that long, but not, not, that's actually 40 years now, right? 85 was 40 years ago. Yeah. I'm getting old. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's, that's, that's uh -huh. kind of um, MDMA-assisted um, therapy. They teach... They manualize and teach those kinds of frameworks to the therapists in those in those studies. 
Um, and I think that's gonna be another nice model. I think a lot of different psychotherapeutic models. I think the Yale group has an acceptance commitment to change um, psilocybin-assisted therapy manual. So there's different people, there's gonna be different, many different modalities, I think, mm -hmm. that we'll see. So we just got a couple minutes left, and so maybe, I mean, there's just one question is be good if, if you both have a little uh, answer to it. Uh, just looking forward, just like, Given the advances you're just talking about with MDMA and these other things, the trials that are going on, like when you look, say, 10 years ahead, let's use it as a time frame, I mean, do you see, you know, what do you see psychedelics, what role do you see it in American society? Will, it, will they be regulated? Will it be just sort of a standard part, or will it still be this very sort of uh, little boutique corner of, of the psychotherapy world? Like, what's it going to be like in 10 years? And, you know, each of you can give it a shot. I mean, I can tell you my, my hope. I, I hope that if we are able to continue to demonstrate effectiveness for, a psycho, you know, for the kind of therapeutic domain, I hope in my practice that patients can come to me and there will be strong evidence to pair the correct psychedelic and therapy for their needs and that I'll be able to provide that care to my patients. So that's really my specific goal. You know, there's a lot of different directions that this could go in, and it's we are at such an early stage, and the public interest is so heightened relative to kind of where we are from a policy perspective. So I think it's it's hard to predict right now. Um, but yeah, but that would be my hope. I, I hope that I can prescribe it if it, if it continues to show that that it can be helpful for my patients. I'm still. I share your hope. Um, that's. I think the medical uh, development of psychedelics will be more far along down the road, uh, away in ten years, that it'll be integrated into our toolkit of of uh, not just psychiatric care, but palliative care, rehabilitation care, other other fields of medicine where. Uh, you know, we can use this kind of therapy and it'll be re-covered by insurance and it'll be, you'll have various different forms that are available for different cultural competency, uh, humility connections, so people will integrate that. And I also see development of psychedelics in the context of spiritual practice, religious and spiritual practice. People call that an entheogenic reformation happening where more and more cult churches or religious groups are sort of claiming these as sacraments. And I think that's a natural place. And, and then another place where we're talking about sort of safe recreation or some form of, of uh, practice outside of those. And so a substance can live in all a bunch of different places. They don't have to be monopolized into one. Uh, coming from Indian culture, um, my, my parents are from India, uh, cannabis was utilized in all sectors. You know, there's religious use, there's uh, ceremonial use, uh, and there's a celebratory use. And we just did that. that it lived in all those places. So I think that that's uh, uh, my hope, because there's, not everyone's going to fit into one box. Okay. Well, we are officially out of time. So Dr. Sackett, Dr. Agarwal, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Carl, Nathan, and Sunil for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. 
In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.